Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen. uh... Can I please have your attention? We have a great show for you tonight. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come to thedispatch.com to uh, check out all of our impeachment coverage, plus all the other stuff we're talking about and writing about. You know, this Romney uh, uh, plan is kind of fascinating, and we're doing more and more deep dives on it, and all sorts of other stuff is happening. But uh, all it takes a backseat to what is happening right now, which is we're having um, a regular contributor to the dispatch, a uh, colleague of mine from AEI, um, friend of, uh, of, of the dispatch in all sorts of other ways, um, and internationally acclaimed author and activist, Ayan Hirsi Ali, uh, to come talk to us about her new book, which is Prey, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights. Uh, you can find her other stuff at ianhersey.com. Um, and she also has a podcast under her own name as well. We'll put all of that in the show notes. Uh, just a little heads up. I'm recording this intro after doing, uh, the, after our conversation. Um, I had some delay in terms of hearing her and her and me. So hopefully uh, Caleb, in part to atone for taking out um, some of the most popular things in the intro music to this podcast uh, will be uh, uh, surgical in cleaning some of that up, but uh, it did make it for a little difficulty in having a um, uh, rapid fire back and forth on some of this stuff. Um, and with that, uh, here we go. Here comes my conversation with Ayan Hirsi Okay, so Ayan, thank you so much for coming on The Remnant. Uh, we wanted to do this for a while. Um, and uh, why don't we, before we get straight into the meat of the book that you have coming out, uh, Prey, um, why don't you, for the casual, for the person who may have heard of you but doesn't know your story, why don't you just sort of give us a little bit of a background on your background? Like, how did you end up becoming who you are, as it were? Oh, my gosh. Um, okay, so uh, my name's <laughs> Ayan. <laughs> My name is Ayan Hersi Ali. I was born in Somalia in 1969. I grew up all over the place. My family left uh, Somalia in oh, uh, 79. I lived in Saudi Arabia, Ethiopia, um, Kenya. I left Kenya in 1992 for the Netherlands. I lived there for 14 years, and then I came to the United States um, and I came to the United States in for the first time in 2002, but I moved here formally uh, 
in 2006 and came to work for the American Enterprise Institute. I think that's where we, you and I met, Jonah. Um, and I've been mm-hmm. here ever since, um, American Enterprise Institute and then the Belfer uh, at University of Harvard, and I'm now with the Hoover Institution. Is that short enough? <laughs> Skipping so much. Uh, it's, it's, it's impressively short, given all the things that you, you skipped over, like you were a member of parliament in the Netherlands and... Uh, one of the reasons you came here is because lots of people have wanted to kill you. I mean, I'm not, I don't mean that glibly. It just happens to be the easiest way to describe the fact that you, there are many fatwas and death threats that you've had to deal with. And it's, 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 it's impressive that you would leave some of that stuff out. <laughs> um, so uh, just out of curiosity, how many languages do you speak? Uh, well, right now I just speak English, Dutch, and Somali in, in terms of fluency. In fact, uh, my Dutch is getting a little rusty because I haven't spoken it for so long. Um, but I learned to speak um, Arabic and Amharic and Swahili uh, along the way. Uh, I lost my Arabic and Swahili and Amharic. Um, but I think the, the stories that uh, people in the West always thought were impressive was um, the reason why I came to the Netherlands, which was my father had decided that I was going to marry someone I didn't want to spend the rest of my life with. And uh, this guy who was a distant cousin lived in Canada. And in 1992, uh, I was shuttled off to Germany. And from Germany, I was supposed to go to Canada and join him. But instead of going to Canada, I left uh, for the Netherlands and I asked for asylum. And that's how I ended up in the Netherlands. And uh, I lived there uh, and I led a very happy life. And and then the 11th of September came about and I there I took a position which in hindsight maybe I shouldn't have. Um, I was convinced that 19 men who uh, attacked the United States uh, were motivated by um, conviction, religious conviction and not American foreign policy or Israeli foreign policy. And that puts me um, in a, you know, not a pleasant camp to be. A difficult spot. A difficult spot. And I think that that actually started the threats against my life. But besides saying that, you know, they were motivated by their radical Islamic convictions, uh, the Netherlands was actually at that point also uh, trying to integrate uh, their Muslim minorities, a large number of their Muslim minority, uh, not only the first generation, but second generation immigrants, and asked me, hey, you've been here for only 10 years, you speak the language, you know, uh, how did you do it? And I just said, you know, uh, you have to emancipate Muslim women. And what's holding them back is, again, the Islamic religious convictions and Muslim men. And if we emancipate the Muslim women will be able to get that done in about one generation. And that put me in even more trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and that actually was the pathway uh, for me to go from the think tank to practical politics, which I didn't like very much. Um, and uh, the threats along with uh, the rough and tumble of politics um, that got me then out of politics um, that's when I started applying for jobs uh, with the American Enterprise Institute, or the American Enterprise Institute gave me the job. I came here applying for uh, jobs with think tanks. And uh, that's when my uh, citizenship was taken away and 
I got into more trouble. So that, that's sort of the personal story of how I came into, uh, into the United States. No, I just think it's, it's, it's useful context for, for some people. Um, and it's just kind of an amazing story just on its own merit. So I mean, most of the people I have on this podcast, they tell me a story about how they went to college, then they went to grad school, then they went and got a job writing books. And it's, it's just not thrilling or anything. So, um, <laughs> uh, so anyway, speaking of books, uh, your latest book um, is called Prey. And it is, uh, the full title is Pray, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights. And um, I'm going to ask you what um, I often describe as my favorite question to get asked when I'm on a book tour. What's your book about? My book is about uh, the failure of um, European institutions in um, integrating their immigrant minorities and in particular Muslim uh, Muslim, <laughs> Muslim minorities into their value systems. And uh, one of the unintended consequences is um, that how that is, um, what that means for women in general. Um, mm-hmm. Previous books were about what that meant for Muslim women and immigrant women. Um, my previous work centered around, because that was, again, we just touched on that. If you mm-hmm. wanted uh, integration to succeed, you had to emancipate Muslim women from Muslim men um, mm-hmm. and child marriage and female genital mutilation um, make sure that these women go to school, finish school, choose their own mates, keep their own, um, you know, get employed and keep their own money and find their own path and, you know, plot their own destinies to be whatever they want. Um, So that was sort of the subjects of my activism in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were conversations about that uh, and still are, uh, and there's a lot of activism still around that. And I think centre-left parties and centre-right parties discuss that, have a lot of empathy and sympathy for those women, but not very much happened. Um, but as the mm-hmm. scale and scope of immigrants grew and as uh, the failure of integration continued, um some of that, some of those problems spilled over into the public space. So from the domestic sphere into the public space, and now all women are getting affected. And true to the nature of these issues and the controversies and sensitivities around these issues, um, there's this taboo, you know, you have conversations around the dining table, birthday parties, on social media, but the establishment parties and commentators are having a very hard time bringing this thing into the open. So I want to give you sort of the American example where we had uh, this big explosion that we called Me Too, uh, where um, mm-hmm. women uh, talked about the treatment or mistreatment of women in the workplace, 
and this thing has been brewing for a long time. Women were not being treated well in the workplace. And a number of women came out together and said, this happened and it happened to me too and me too and me too. And, um, you know, that that was a good thing. And I thought, wow, this is great. This is going to trickle uh, out and it's just going to empower and encourage um, and and it, it went across the Atlantic. And so Me Too uh, was, uh, there were women in the workspace in Europe also coming out and saying, this is happening right here. Uh, and things I thought were going to change. And this was maybe going to be the new wave of feminism of the 21st century. Um, but then it stopped right there. Uh, it, it didn't trickle down to say, working class women in working class neighborhoods who were being affected um, and were being confronted with sexual violence that was committed uh, by immigrant men in the public space. Um, and, and I thought that was a pity. And because we live in this age of identity politics, um, sexual misconduct committed by immigrants, men of color, and especially men from Muslim-majority countries. These are issues that in Europe are already sensitive, already controversial. And somehow, you know, that whole thing just came to a screeching halt. And I thought, look, mm. that's not... Uh, I, I, I don't know if your audience knows about, say, the grooming gangs in, uh, in the United Kingdom, where you had uh, gangs of Pakistani men were abusing um, white working class um, girls. And this was covered up for a very long time. These children were betrayed for a very long time. There's a lot of political correctness around that. Um, and there's been a lot of soul searching in the United Kingdom. Uh, it, the thing is now out, these men have been prosecuted, um, but there've been similar things that have been going on in, in other parts of Europe. Now, these grooming gangs were much more organized and much more of a criminal network. But what, we, what we're seeing in other parts of Europe, say Germany, Sweden, uh, is the phenomenon of not something as well organized and well networked, but more of a spontaneous attack of young groups of men um, just really behaving in ways that... Uh, European women are just not familiar with. Uh, women who live in Egypt or Afghanistan or Somalia, Eritrea, uh, those parts of the world are familiar with that type of behavior and have developed coping mechanisms with that. Uh, but when I, I remember when I first came to the Netherlands, I remember thinking, oh, wow, uh, you know, you can walk the streets, uh, the parks, uh, you can use transport systems. Uh, at any time of the day or night without worrying, without any concerns. And, and, and you take that public safety for granted. And over time, things have changed. And some of the interesting, uh, when I was doing the research for the book, some of the women were saying, we now have so-called women-free zones. And what that means is that these European women are simply erasing themselves out of these 
areas, streets, neighborhoods, parks, because it's just, it just isn't safe for them. And I find that phenomenon concerning. And the people who are supposed to do something about that are just not doing it because it's... It, 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 it's just this framework of we live in this time where to talk about these things um, gets you into more trouble as a politician, as um, a senior law enforcement official, as a journalist, um, than if you didn't. And I spoke to a number of people who would say, I, I will talk honestly to you, but I don't want my name in the book. Uh, I, I'll speak anonymously. And it's, it's, that's just the phenomenon that gets to me. So I, I just, um, if, when you talk about how in, in their home countries there are coping mechanisms that deal with this, I assume you mean in part just the fact that in a lot of traditional Muslim societies, women aren't expected to go out alone. They're expected to have male escorts, brothers, husbands, fathers that, um, you know, that provide a certain amount of not just physical, immediate physical safety, but also send a signal that this woman isn't fair game from predatory groups of young men and whatnot. But is the, so tease it apart for me a little bit because, you know, the, the the nature the, the there are lots of societies including in america and in 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 the past where uh you know young men on the street were considered dangerous regardless of their religion or regardless of their ethnicity or their nationality and that's an old story about you know uncivilized young men going back for all i know to ancient babylon and the streets of rome or whatever um how what is what is the causation or the correlation about the about the islam part versus the the general problem that you that that is well documented particularly about unassimilated immigrant young men who uh don't assimilate into the culture but sort of assimilate into a kind of street culture i mean what 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 are the dry, what is the relationship to islam in your mind that is makes it stand out so I make it very clear in the book that um, sexual violence and sexual misconduct against women is a universal phenomenon. So it's not exclusive to Islam or Muslim men. Um, in fact, I make it very, very clear right now that if you look at organized crime against women, um, in fact, it's, say, Russian men, or it's, it's not even Muslims at all. The, the biggest consumers of child pornography are Western men, for instance. Uh, so it, it, mm. it, it's not even, so I, I, that's not the claim I'm making. And um, Muslim women in during the Balkan War, Yugoslavia War, they, they've been the biggest victims of it. So the, the, the claim I'm making is not that Muslim men, uh, are, you know, have an exclusive claim uh, to sexual misconduct. Absolutely not. That's not what mm. I'm saying. Uh, it, 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 what is interesting is that it's just the scale of immigration um, that 
very young men unaccompanied by their families are coming from Muslim-majority countries into Europe. Uh, and that scale, uh, that's really what's interesting. That's the, that and the political salience of that. Um, mm-hmm. Now, if you take that phenomenon of just the increase in numbers and the fact that those um, who are already and the immigrants who are already in Europe are poorly integrated and that this clash of values um, hasn't been resolved and uh, you have uh, the right-wing, extreme right-wing populist groups um, that are literally imagining uh, and claiming these issues plus the emergence and, again, uh, uh, I don't know how to say this, uh, but the power of the radical Islamists in many of these countries is also growing, and they Mm -hmm. seem to think that they have an answer to these issues. Uh, So you have these forces uh, that are challenging the social cohesion of uh, uh, societies in Europe. That's what makes this issue interesting. Um, Okay, so having said that, there is an attitude uh, in, again, Muslim-majority countries at this point that is at odds with the evolution that European societies have made in the relationship between men and women. And again, I said at this point, not 50 years ago or 100 years ago. And in Muslim-majority countries at this point, there is this attitude to women that women are divided into the virtuous and the modest versus the rest, those who are not virtuous mm-hmm. and the modest. And I describe that in detail in the book. And so young young men have that attitude. Uh, and if you are covered up and you stay at home and you are a virgin and you are married and you, you behave in the way you're supposed to, uh, then you're virtuous. And women in those areas have adapted to that and they cope and they've developed these coping mechanisms. Now, that doesn't always protect you. As I don't know if you're familiar with, say, the stories from Egypt where it really doesn't matter if you cover from head to toe and you adapt, but still you can be victimized. Mm-hmm. Then you come to, place, to a place like Europe and you have you see women who are free. They're in shorts uh, and tank tops in the summer. Uh, they're going about their business. And as a young man, everything tells you they don't meet that criteria of being virtuous. And you start to behave in ways that you shouldn't be behaving. And society is not telling you, or the leadership in society is not telling you, uh, hey, hey, wait a second, things are different here. Should you be blaming the young men for behaving in ways that they shouldn't be? I don't know. I'm just noting that the violence and the misconduct uh, against women um, that is being reported anecdotally to begin with is going up and up. There have been studies conducted by various countries And then once they get that data, what I've also noticed in 
some of these countries is then that data is used as a tool to politicize. And, and I find that unfortunate because you, you have some countries, for instance, like Denmark or Austria, where they say, okay, we can't hide this anymore. Here, there is not just a correlation, there is a causation. Um, but in some of the other countries, well, they see the data and they say, okay, we see something here and then we'll just do another study or we'll just obfuscate or we'll hide. Um, and again, that I find um, I find unfortunate. So there is a cultural element, there is a religious element, but you don't need to conclude that this is something exclusively Islamic or exclusively Muslim. It's universal, but in the context of the, radical, the rise of the radical right, the rise of radical Islam, the failed integration of decades long, and again, the anticipated increase of uh, immigration from Muslim countries, it is something that I think that uh, these European countries should attend to before things get out of hand. Right. I mean, the, I mean, cause the, it's, 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 it's this very strange thing listening to you, listening to you describe how you're in favor of women being able to control their own destiny and being, having their own agency and being fully formed human beings with their own inalienable rights. And yet for reasons that I have to chalk up to things like intersectionality and, and political correctness, that makes you a screaming right winger. Whereas <laughs> if I describe these things on paper, you would sound like a pretty mainstream classic feminist. And, and it's, to me, it's, it's, uh, like I, I tried to look around about the statistics and, you know, their st statistics fights drive me crazy. Um, but at least from the news reports anecdotally, and I'm sure you have lots of research in the book about this, it seems to me obvious that there is some problem, there is a significant non-trivial problem about young immigrant men and second generation immigrant men. We've known this for a while that they, that they, uh, not only do they not hold on the second generation ones, not hold on to their traditional views, but they also don't assimilate into the mainstream culture either. And they're deracinated and you have the Banaloo in France and all that. I, I, I willing to stipulate that, uh, the, the thing that I think is fascinating is that if you were talking about Huguenots or other, some evangelical white Christians and their dangerous views on sexuality, you would get a lot more support, but because of the identity politics problem, and this is a specific problem in this context, um, you're seen as as anti-Muslim and victimizing Muslims and giving Muslims a bad name. And that's a real problem for the politics here. Because I mean, how do, you, how do you get out of that? How do you convince a Western European society that has married into this sort of identity politics scheme of, of not wanting to cause, cause, shed bad attention, bad light on, uh, on certain members of the coalition of the oppressed um, how do you, how, how do you, how do you break out of that? Because, you know, in the States now, even talking about assimilation is considered, uh, bigoted and I, I don't, I, I, what's the exit strategy? So the exit strategy is, I think, to create a coalition of the rational 
that want to get out of this trap of identity politics and of trying to escape from um, attempts at uh, attempts at uh, holding uh, office political office, um, seeking political office, uh, and then avoiding um, the difficult uh, and sometimes, you know, just these confounding problems. Uh, and, and European officials have been avoiding for a long time the confounding problems of immigration, of uh, Islam, integration, women's rights, those issues. Um, you know, any country that has accepted a substantial a number of Muslim immigrants uh, has had a rise in populist parties, uh, extreme right-wing parties, um, and uh, Islamist terrorism. And so... The national conversation about Muslims are terrorists, for instance, uh, in France, in the United Kingdom, in the Netherlands, in some Scandinavian countries, is confounding. And politicians will say, please, let's not stigmatize Muslims. Muslim activists will comment, please do not stigmatize us. Uh, I think uh, that's a good thing. Let's not stigmatize Muslims. How do you get there? Well, then <laughs> address the issues that voters um, worry about the most and address those issues in a rational way, come to the table in good faith. And if you, if you say then what exactly is happening on the street, what is happening to voters that really matters to them and how can we reduce, say, um, the potential uh, to stop the next young man from terrorizing his neighborhood, his streets, and so on, then you're going to have to talk about not just the guy who's you know building the next pipe bomb, but the guy who's preaching and the material that is being used uh, to get young men to take the terrorist steps. And if a number of women come together and say, I, I can't walk the street anymore, I can't take the train anymore. I'm avoiding jogging and so Start talking about those bread and butter issues. And what these, and I'm talking about on the local level, the provincial level, the state level, what some of these elected officials are doing is they avoid that stuff. And then the populists come in and the extremists come in. They are the only ones who are talking about these issues. Voters turn to them. The Russian, Russian trolls come in, they exaggerate these issues. The radical Islamists come in and they say they have the issue. They say, well, you women, uh, you will walk around like sluts and whores. And so you should cover up. And they tell the young men that are the modest and the immodest. So basically what happens is all of these wrong types, in my view, these radical elements, they get empowered. And the so-called establishment groups, they're they're elbowed out of the way. And, and then you have this vicious cycle where 
the 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 middle groups, the establishment types, they are the ones who are creating the taboo. They're moralizing each other. They're demonizing each other. The problems get bigger and bigger. You know, there's not the social cohesion. Uh, people start to hate immigrants. The immigrants feel unwelcome and discriminated against. You get this political volatility, and that's really the subtext of this book. It's just very interesting because this is when I, you know, I was at National Review for 21 years, and I was always more sort of pro-immigration than some of my colleagues at the at the magazine. But I basically found their arguments very compelling on, on, on in this regard. Is they said, you know, this is something that John O'Sullivan used to say, it's something Ramesh used to say, is if. Mainstream politicians don't take these issues seriously, then then if responsible politicians don't take these things seriously, irresponsible politicians will pick them up because it's something that really does arouse passion out there. And the the sort of Baptist and bootleggers relationship between radical uh, right wing neo-Nazi types and sort of radical pro you know, Muslim extremist types that you see, you know, in this game between the far right and the far left, where each one gets to use the other as a boogeyman to justify their own agenda. That's a really unhealthy dynamic. And um, it seems to me, it's, I like the idea of a coalition of the rational, but having lived in the United States for the last five years following politics, I um, I wish I could be more enthusiastic, more optimistic about it, it, it coming about. But um, it's, it's, so I, I want to come back to something earlier that you said about the Me Too movement. It seems to me, and I'm sure you recognize and deal with this in the book, but there's a, there's a really important distinction between what the Me Too movement was about, particularly in the States and what you're talking about insofar as so much of the Me Too stuff which I was generally sympathetic to, and I kept waiting for it to have too much of a backlash, for it to go too far. And for the most part, it, it kind of didn't. I think it was mostly a healthy thing, but it was mostly aimed at elite men in power who were abusing their positions of power with women. And what you're talking about in Europe is mostly almost the exact inverse of that. It is, it is non-elite men who are generally powerless of physically abusing strangers rather than coworkers and, and whatnot. And it, it, it seems to me that like the, the, the Me Too movement, at least in the States, I don't know how it played out in Europe, it's largely an elite phenomenon. And what you're talking about is something that gets you on sort of on the wrong side of a lot of class and identity politics issues. Um, and you can see how elites would just be scared of it. Um, that's right. So it is uh, the men, in, in this case, the perpetrators, are non-elite men. In fact, they are dispossessed men. They are uh, themselves the victims of war and economic crises. Uh, they come from places like uh, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, Eritrea, Senegal. I mean... Uh, these men are themselves victims of violence uh, and, and incredibly poor. And 
their future is in question. So uh, there's every reason to feel sorry for the perpetrators themselves. Uh, but the, the women they victimize are women in uh, low-income neighborhoods. Uh, they are women who cannot afford to move out of those neighborhoods to safer neighborhoods. So the women themselves, this, this is a class issue for victims and for for the perpetrators. So in, in many ways, I think that's why it hasn't, the Me Too hasn't gone as far uh, down as it, as, as it should have. And so it is, uh, I think it, it becomes very complex. And when you look at um, the feminism of today, there's this feminism that is going after or is organized uh, to defend, uh, you know, the rights of women to shatter the glass ceiling, to get women on boards, to have women to become CEOs and chancellors and so on. But uh, these, that type of feminism has no sympathy, or at least hasn't shown much sympathy uh, for the women that I discuss in the book, the women that I've interviewed, they, they, they haven't, they haven't been acknowledged, their suffering hasn't been acknowledged, and the fact that they're bearing the unintended consequences of this type of immigration, that hasn't been acknowledged. In fact, when they put their claims forth, they are the ones who have been accused of xenophobia and racism, and uh, and they're not only bearing the unintended consequences of immigration, they're bearing the unintended consequences of identity politics, or maybe the intended consequences of identity politics. I'm not sure what that is, uh, but they are suffering. Um, and, they are, and I sometimes imagine, I hope uh, the answer might lie in a coalition between immigrant women and these working class white women in these neighborhoods. Uh, there might be a pathway somewhere there. Uh, the, the future might lie there, but that's what it's, it, that, there's an opportunity there, uh, I might say, because I've seen in places, I talked to the economist Tino Sanandaji and other immigrants who are saying, uh, these, there are more and more immigrants, immigrant women especially, who are giving a voice to, um, to um, this phenomenon of uh, uh, rape and harassment and sexual violence in the public space perpetrated by men who don't, by strangers, strangers on strangers, and who are saying we've had enough of this. And if they were to find a coalition with, again, working class white women, that could lead to something very interesting. Yeah. No, that's an it's interesting. I mean, um, you know, as a conservative, in some ways, I am. You know, you you always you always end up being careful what you wish for. And for years, I always thought that class based sort of don't call it Marxism, but sort of left wing progressive class based analysis left a lot to be desired. But there's a lot more going for it than. I used to appreciate um, when you realize it's being replaced by this sort of elite version of identity politics, which has even less going for it. Um, I do have a question for you that um, um, I, uh, so, I mean, this is not quite directly on the topic of the book, but you have 
dealt with so many of these issues in different contexts for so long. I used to have a more sort of grudging respect for the monolithic way the international Muslim community stayed on message from country to country, the organization of, of Arab states or Islamic states, you know, they, they all seemed, you know, not just with regard to Israel, but with a whole bunch of various issues, they seemed to have all their, all their ducks in a row when it came to their messaging and their ideological positioning. And then lo and behold, China starts rounding up hundreds of thousands, millions, we don't know how many for sure, Muslims and putting them in essentially concentration camps. And um, you would think that of the issues that would arouse the passion of the international Muslim community, this would be up there. Surely if the United States did anything, when the United States after 9-11 never did anything remotely like this, but was accused of doing almost precisely this, um, what do you, th is it, is it, is it that the, the international Muslim community has its own version of an entity politics and that racism and bigotry is just something that white countries do? Or is there, is it just that China is so powerful that it can manipulate these debates? What, what is your take on all that? Well, I think it's very, very cynical. Yeah. I, I mean, with you, I've noted that the so-called international, um, uh, Islamic movement, whether it is the super radical, uh, like Al-Qaeda and ISIS and the remnants of ISIS, uh, along with Saudi Arabia, Iran, whether it's governmental or non-governmental, that they were able to mobilize around cartoons of Muhammad um, mm -hmm. and say absolutely nothing about genocide and the forced sterilization of women in these Uyghur camps and what China is doing to the Uyghur community. And uh, that is, it's just so fascinating uh, and so cynical. And that you have to ask yourself, what does China have on them, right? Uh, but that mm -hmm. is the cynicism of, uh, I would say, their fear. What has China got on them? Um, you know, again, like you said, they stay on message. Every session of the United Nations is uh, let's bash Israel session and let's bash the United States right. uh, session. And uh, again, and I bring up the cartoons because that was we were made to believe in 2006 and the whole Charlie Hebdo thing. We were made to believe that that was an existential threat to Islam. And here it is where people are, human beings are being eliminated. And that tells you something about their priorities and how cynical these things are. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like the, the old joke about faculty disputes is that the, the knives are so big because the stakes are so small. You know, here you have, uh, you know, fight, fights about cartoons and, um, and they've, you know, the, the, the images that we now have of Islamic, uh, temp, you know, uh, the mosques and burial grounds and cemeteries just being bulldozed. You would, I would think, 
as a Muslim, that would be at least as offensive as a cartoon. I mean, forget the murder and forget the forced sterilizations and the rapes. I mean, I hate saying things like that, but like just the cultural politics of what China is doing with its Muslim population, you would think would arouse at least crowds. And yet there's just, I, maybe I'm missing it. Maybe it's being censored. You know, it's, it's weird. Well, well, it, it's not weird. I remember in 2006 when those crowds were, you know, supposedly coming out uh, in uh, outrage against the cartoons, that that was staged because I remember saying uh, the populations who were um, coming out into the streets in protest of the cartoons, they couldn't come out to say they don't have bread and they don't have enough energy and they uh, can't come out for their own freedoms. Uh, and, and they were coming out about some unknown and one of the most obscure newspapers in the world in some country they had never heard of called Denmark. Uh, those mm-hmm. Those populations, I think, that were whipped out. They were told, go out and do this by the governments that oppressed them. Um, so I really wonder if any of those populations actually know what's going on with the Uyghurs because the most Muslim populations live under dictatorships. And if those dictatorships are taking money from uh, China uh, and uh, China tells them there's no way you're going to object to this, then they're not. And this is the world we live in. And this is what uh, Arab dictators and uh, other Muslim dictators uh, are doing to their own populations. So why would they object to China? Um, and again, I really hope that the United States will, will remain the world leader and not China. So um, what is a country, what is a country in Europe that you think is actually that's two questions. You can you can take them both back to back. One is, what is the country in Europe that you think is actually showing the most promise about dealing with these issues in terms of encouraging assimilation the right way, about you know uh, confronting the the downside of of this kind of immigration best, and also what Muslim majority country do you think handles modernity the best in terms of dealing with these internal problems that you've long criticized in the Islamic world, what, you know, what, what, which Islamic country do you think is showing the most promise in this? You can take either question in any order. In any order. Okay. So in terms of which countries have taken steps, uh, in, in terms of assimilating Muslim minorities because they've learned it the hard way, I would say it's Denmark, Austria, I think the United Kingdom post Brexit is going is showing promise, uh, not only uh, in terms of assimilating uh, Muslims, their Muslim minorities, but also in terms of um, standing up to China, uh, you know, taking their place in the global spotlight. Hopefully. Um, in, in terms of uh, Muslim majority countries, the UAE has made it uh, very plain, you know, extending friendship toward Israel, uh, diversifying away from oil. And they have that back and forth with the way they are treating women, uh, but they've shown some very concrete steps 
in which I would say in many ways they're still they're still doing and there's still some very medieval practices uh, but they seem to to show promise in my view um, that there is some very serious interest in moving forward in and uh, in, in their French towards modernity in their own self-interest but you know kidnapping your daughters and that that's of course insane um do you have a i mean do you have a theory about what the relationship is between um both the problems in europe with with regard to these issues but also in these various countries in terms of how much economics plays a role you know in saudi arabia part of the problem has always been you know, this natural resource curse that developmental economists talk about, that because they didn't have to depend on their middle class, and when a middle class emerges, it then demands rights and, and accountable government because it's paying for the government. When you have a resource curse, you basically treat your citizens like subjects, and you allow, it allows you not to have democratization and reforms and whatnot. But there are a lot of countries that don't have natural resource curses, and they still have these issues. What is, and, and, and again, in, in Europe, the problem of if you can't get social mobility and get out of the conditions that you're in, you, that's how you get this permanent underclass crime problem. What are your views about economics, how it relates to all of this stuff? I think the thesis that oil um, is a curse and was a curse for these Gulf countries, that thesis, I buy into it because it did postpone um, the uh, you know, the, the relationship with reality. Um, and now mm-hmm. they see that, in fact, uh, a country like Saudi Arabia sees that they do have to move away from oil. And uh, that shift away from oil, hopefully, is going to... Uh, mo- hopefully, that will lead to also a move away from Sharia law and from embarking on the adventure of a new value system. Um, Unfortunately, they're doing it through the path of chopping up journalists and continuing into the, again, that approach of beheadings, uh, the subjection of women, Mm -hmm. and all, all of this stuff that they're doing. But I'm more hopeful that uh, this prince, as awful as he is, um, it's an opening. I mean, I think these things don't happen overnight. It's going to take time. But so far, if I look at the balance sheet of the things that he has done poorly and some of the promising things he has done, I, I would say at this point, let's just give him the benefit of the doubt. And let's invest in that. And, and yeah, it, it's better than anything his predecessors have done. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of with you on this as a matter of realpolitik. Um, I am sure that Kamal Ataturk did some absolutely terrible things modernizing Turkey. Um, that doesn't mean it's not in America's interest for Saudi Arabia and these countries to modernize. Um, uh, at the same time, as a Reaganite, Anytime a country chops up a journalist, even when I really disagree with about all sorts of things, you have to condemn that. You have to say, you know, there's certain things that's part of the 
encouraging modernization is to say that some things are just beyond the pale. Um, does that mean that we cut off all relations with Saudi Arabia forever? No. But does it mean that, you know, it, this is that kind of behavior is going to make things more difficult? I think it has to, right? I think every time he does, every time any country that we have an alliance with, every time they do something wrong, we have to condemn it unconditionally. But in, in, along with the condemnation, we have to push them in the right direction. I think when you break ties for good, then you push them, say, into the hands of China or Russia, and then you make things worse. Or as we did with Egypt or, um, again, with Libya, you know, you get into even worse situations where you get either the Muslim Brotherhood or civil war. or And so I think every single time you have to make that trade-off, you know, which one is the worst evil? And, and that is statecraft. That is strategy. And every single time you have to make that trade-off. Uh, you don't have to approve of what he's doing to keep him on board and push him in the right direction. Um, but yeah, good luck to the state and to the Secretary of State. Okay, we're, so we're, we're running a bit long on time here, and I know you've got a busy book tour to deal with, um, and I want to watch the impeachment stuff. <laughs> and um, But um, just sort of as a general proposition, you're going to get, I mean, you this happens whenever you have a book come out, you're going to get a lot of criticism. Some will be fair and a lot will be unfair. Is there a, is there a line of criticism that bothers you the most about, you know, your arguments and, and where you're coming from and all of this? Yeah, and it's the line that makes this thing into a caricature about um, black men uh, raping white women. And it, that's the, the one that bothers me the most because it, this isn't about race. It isn't about identity politics. It's about fellow human beings. Uh, and it's all about victims. Uh, this isn't... This, I want these men to be assimilated. I want them to be integrated. I want them to have good lives in Europe without women, I don't care what their skin color is, becoming victims of sexual violence. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I mean, I was kind of surprised listening to you throughout the course of this conversation. You're much more understanding of the perpetrators than I am. I, I'm one of these, maybe it's because I'm an Old Testament kind of guy and I have a lot more smiting and wrath in me. But I, my view is, is that I really do not care what your story is. If you attack women or you rape women or rape men, I don't care. Rapists, there has to be blanket condemnation and punishment for it. And like, uh, I understand that sometimes people come from bad places and have have negative backgrounds and hardships and all of that. But part of the deal of being assimilated into a modern country, any country, is you have to be behave by the rules. And one of the bedrock rules is violence is unacceptable. Sexual violence is unacceptable. And they're, they're, one of the key things about conservatism in my lights is there's an important di difference between explanations and excuses. I, I'm perfectly willing to hear the explanation for why some of these men have these attitudes and these behaviors. I don't think any of them are excuses for those behaviors. No excuses. I, and I love your chivalry. Um, but I, again, I still <laughs> think that yeah, I love your chivalry and you should keep it. And I think all men should be chivalrous. Um, but again, the, the point of the book is uh, assimilate, teach them the values, socialize them, civilize them. Um, 
but yeah, protect the women. Fair enough. Ian Hersey Ali, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we'll have, uh, uh, you have a podcast coming out with a book. You have um, a website. Uh, we'll put it all in the show notes. People can check it out. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. All right. So uh, uh, Ayan had to move on to uh, the rest of her book tour, and um, it was great to have her on. And I look forward, if you hadn't figured it out yet, I have not had a chance uh, for all sorts of reasons, good and bad. I haven't had a chance to um, read her book yet, but I look forward to, to, to reading it. And, um, it was, uh, it was great to sort of counter program once again against all the stuff that's going on in Washington right now. Um, and I, I apologize to listeners. I didn't get to ask her to say, no, you won't. This is a podcast. I had this idea to have her say it in Somali, which would have been, or whatever the language she chooses, um, which would have been fun. Um, I know she said that her Swahili is rusty, but maybe she could have managed, but she had to go. Um, so I apologize for that. Maybe next time I'll have these guys say it at the front so they can't get away. Um, regardless, check out the show notes for links to the book, to her podcast and to uh, her website. And until then, I will see you next time. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.